Welcome to the Clear Admit MBA Admissions Podcast. I'm Graham Richmond, and this is your Wiretaps for Monday, February 7th, 2022. I'm joined by Alex Brown from Cornwall, England. Alex, how are things going? Very good. Thank you, Graham. So, you know, I got to say, February is my favorite month um, because... There's just so much happening with, you know, round two stuff. There are people who are kind of still on wait lists from round one. It's just like a lot of activity is, and it's also that anticipation as we head into, you know, March, which is when, you know, the decisions come. And so do you want to give us a rundown though on like what's been happening on the MBA front? I was going to tell you why February is my favorite month too. Oh, okay. Yeah. I want to know. Yeah. I can go to the pub. I can sit by the fire. I can have myself a pint and I don't get disturbed by anyone because no one else is in the pub. (laughs) That's right. It's dead. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And February, I will say it has that symmetry of being like the only perfect month, you know, four weeks of seven days, although every four years it kind of, you know, monkeys with that a bit with that extra day. But um, yeah. Oh, and the other thing I wanted to tell you before we get into the regular stuff is, did you hear that, you know, we talked about Wordle last week. Yeah. Did you hear that the New York Times bought Wordle? The New York Times bought Wordle. Yes. And today I did Nerdle. What's Nerdle? (laughs) <laughs> you go find Nerdle. It's a bit more complicated. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, super interesting. I love Wordle. All right. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's, it's all a bit of fun, right? But it's kind of, kind of a fun thing to do. Definitely. Yeah, I've been having fun with it. So, um, all right. But diving into MBA admissions stuff, which probably most of our listeners are interested in. I mean, what happened last week? What do we have to look forward to in the coming week or so? Because there's a lot going on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're starting to really see a big uptick on interview invites for round two, which is, um, as you were sort of alluding to earlier in this um, podcast, in terms of activity. Um, so, uh, Ross, earlier in the week, um, you know, the, now we're talking about schools that have a specific deadline when they release all their interview invites at one time. I do prefer that process. I think it's a lot less anxiety for the candidates um, because they know when they're going to get that decision. Um, so, Ross um, led the march um, um, last week, um, Harvard on, on Wednesday. But because we're recording this on Wednesday, I'm saying let's hope Harvard released them on Wednesday. Otherwise, we will have to re-record this podcast. Um, but, um, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, so this is the beginning of the sort of big hitters that release all in one time. So um, so, so Ross Harvard, uh, this upcoming week, London Business School, quite possibly Chicago. We, we're, Chicago's a bit of a mystery. They, they don't um, pre-publish what their interview release date is ordinarily. And they did shift that round two deadline. So looking at last year's interview invite date is a little misleading. Mm. Um, but anticipate to see Chicago this upcoming week. We're still waiting on Wharton. That'll be the following week and, and a couple of other schools. But yeah, lots lots of activity, Graham. Yeah, it's exciting. And I was going to say, um, I mean, we don't normally tell people to buy anything, but I think most of our listeners know that we do sell interview guides for all the top schools. Um, they're, I think they're like 10 bucks or something or 15 bucks. I can't remember the the exact price or I, I don't know, maybe they're 20, but whatever it is, it's not a giant amount of money. And they have all the kind of most commonly asked questions, which you could arguably kind of seek out by looking in our interview archive. But the other thing they have is um, we actually break down how you might think about responding to those questions. And then we have lots of other stuff on, you know, how they weight the interview um, and just sort of historical information about the process. So those are worth your while. Like if you have 
an interview right now for, for HBS. Highly recommend, you know, go grab the guide. I mean, we have them for all the schools. And I would also say that we did a podcast on the Harvard interview process some time ago. It was one of our earlier episodes. Um, so if you want to go back in time and hear vintage, uh, <laughs> vintage Clear Admit podcast episodes, uh, we've got one about how to interview at Harvard Business School. I can't remember the number, but we'll, um, it's, it's readily available. You just Google Clear Admit Harvard interview podcast and, and you will find it. So I have to ask you a question, Graham. Yeah. How was your Harvard interview? Uh, <laughs> uh, it was terrible. I mean, I got in, but I, I left the interview feeling like they were not impressed with me, um, which I later learned was kind of a common thing. I mean, they just, it's, it's not a mean process or anything, but it's also not a rah, rah, rah. Wow. You're so great. Thanks for coming here kind of thing. It's a bit more, um, I would call it a peeling of the onion kind of interview processes where they sit you down, the person that sits down with you has read your entire file. And so they have very pointed, um, you know, deep dive kind of questions. And I, I couldn't help but feel after that, like, wow, they're really probing. Maybe there's stuff they don't like. I just didn't know what to think, you know, so I, I um, but, you know, it all turned out fine in the end. But yeah, it was, it was challenging. And I, I think that's one of the things, that's one of the reasons that we did that podcast episode and that we published the interview guide is to really help people understand what the process is going to be like so they can go in eyes open. I think if I had known all this stuff going in, I probably would have had a really different feeling about it coming out of it. But because I didn't, I was like, uh-oh, you know, I must've been a mistake interview. Like they, you know, they got me there and started <laughs> asking these questions and I was like, oh, they're really clearly not impressed. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, that, that's, that's my take on it. No, very good. And yeah, there's lots of advice um, on, on the site, in, in the interview guides, lots of real good content in the interview archives for each of the schools in terms of all the questions being asked. You need to also know issues like, is it a blind interview versus non-blind? Um, in the case of Harvard, it's non-blind, hence why the, the interviewer can do a deep probe into things that you address in your candidacy. Yeah. But I would argue, Graham, the majority of schools actually use blind interviews, or at least a good portion of the, the schools use blind interviews, which are much, I mean, they're softer and right. they're, they're using the interview to get a, a different perspective, as it were. But you're going to be talking about a lot of the same things uh, as, you, as you address in, in your candidacy. Yeah. Anyway, the, the, the point of all this, not just to sell interview guys, but make sure you go into each of your interviews fully prepared. And there's lots of content on the internet that can allow you now to be fully prepared. Yeah, agreed. You want to go in with your eyes open. And I think, you know, also you want to know, um, in the case of Harvard, sure, it's a, maybe it's a harder interview, more of a deep dive, but they've also made a much deeper cut um, to get you to the interview process. So your odds of getting in are actually quite high once you get to the interview phase. So, yeah, um, yeah so every every style has its advantages and disadvantages. Um, over on the website, Alex, you're not going to believe this, and I think our audience is going to want to kill me, but we we, um, we ran another Real Humans for UVA Darden. I clearly have no idea what's going on because I said two weeks ago that we were done with the Real <laughs> Humans, and I think I misunderstood our editor-in-chief when she said she was done with them, which means they're sort of teed up and, and all kind of, you know, <laughs> scheduled to go out or whatever. And I, I don't, so I have no idea when they're ending, but I had thought we were near the end. So here we are with Darden. That's a fun one to read. Um, yeah, so I got nothing to say on this one anymore. Very good. I, I won't even go there, Graham. <laughs> what about Cornell? What did we learn, learn from Cornell's employment report? 
Yeah, we ran that uh, last week, and we learned that um, average starting salary one hundred thirty nine thousand, so a little lower than you know some of the M seven type schools, but not not much. We're talking about like ten thousand um, dollars, and then the average signing bonus was thirty eight thousand, which is quite a bit higher um, than a lot of their peers. And also, I you know they had ninety seven percent of their graduating class with offers within three months. So of those looking, that's another <laughs> distinction we have to make whenever we give these stats. A lot of them are about, you know, only apply to the people who are actually looking for work. There's always a subset of the, you know, the student body who maybe are sponsored or are starting their own company and just not looking for work. So keep that in mind. Um, I don't know. I can go through the regular stuff too, Alex, because we have, you know, uh, kind of industry placements. So with Cornell, 36% went into finance or financial services. Consulting drew 27%. Tech, 17%. Consumer packaged goods, 6%. And manufacturing, 5%. Any thoughts on those numbers? Well, all the numbers, very interesting. It doesn't surprise me finance is the big, the, the big sector. I mean, I'm sure that's, well, I know it's well aligned with Columbia and Wharton and, and Stern because we talked about this before we came on air. I mean, those schools send a lot of folks into finance yeah. um, and, and, and so forth. And Cornell is renowned for that, a great training program for, for investment banking and so forth. Um, and, and that 139K, that doesn't surprise me, Graham. I, I, the way I look at it, and you can comment on this, M7 is about 150K. Plus Stern 150k, but the S the, the next sort of groupings, I yeah, it doesn't surprise me they're sort of 135 to 140k. Yeah. Um, in terms of their overall sort of median starting salary or whatever. And it all makes sense, yeah. Yeah. If you go to an M7, your your average starting salary should ultimately be a little bit higher than if you go to the the, the, the next tier down. Um, and, and Stern is going to be an exception, I think, for two reasons, Graham, and you can comment on this. One is that higher proportion going into finance, and that typically is a, if, you know, investment banking is a high-paying um, sector, but also a high proportion going into New York City, cost of living, and, and so, so comp, you, you're going to get the comparable sort of um, offer for, for being in a place which is essentially going to be a bit more expensive. I, don't know, I, I assume that's the case, Graham. Yeah, no, I think cost of living plays a big role in some of the offers um, being given. And yeah, and, and again, you know, you were talking about finance placements. I mean, yeah, Columbia is at 36%, uh, same exact percentage as Cornell, NYU 35, Wharton 35. So these are some of the big schools that do send a lot of folks into finance. Obviously, you need to do your due diligence and look at what the breakdown is, you know, from like whether it's investment banking or private equity or venture capital or asset management. There are all these different flavors of, of jobs in finance. And I think they vary quite a bit, even within that group I just referenced. So um, good to sort of look for those breakdowns. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to share on Cornell, and, and then we can kind of move things along, is that in terms of the regional, um, you know, the geographic placements, they had 51% of their class stay in the Northeast, 13% uh, went to the West Coast, 9% Midwest, 7% Southwest, Mid-Atlantic region, 4%, and in the South, 3%. So pretty heavy Northeast um, and a smattering of West Coast and Midwest. But yeah, anything there that's jumping out at you? No, uh, those numbers just don't surprise me at all. Northeast absolutely must be the, the, the majority there. Yeah. 
Makes sense. Um, Ivy League school too. So they have that whole network up and down the, <laughs> the Northeast corridor. Uh, the other thing I want to mention is I did a special one-off podcast episode that we aired last week where I sat down with a school that's doing something kind of interesting um, when it comes to emphasizing career planning and career goals. And, and so the, the episode is really about the importance of career goals when you're applying to business school. So it'd be good for anyone who's you know, kind of thinking this this aspect through, maybe some of our early bird listeners. Um, but I sat down with two folks from the SMU Cox School of Business uh, because they've actually basically merged their admissions office and career services because they view it as they're both kind of services for students. One's kind of coming in and one's going out and they wanted to align them. And I, th- I kind of had to laugh when I heard this only because I remember at Wharton, you know, we sort of operated autonomously from career services. So we would admit the class we wanted, and then they just sort of got dropped onto the career services lap, who then had to find, you know, places for them to land post-MBA. And and every once in a while, you know, you'd admit a candidate who maybe had sort of fuzzy goals, and you'd run into somebody from career services, and they might say, what am I supposed to do with this person exactly? So so I guess what SMU's trying to do is eliminate that stuff. And I think more and more schools are heading in this direction. I believe now even at Wharton, career services and admissions are under one umbrella with a single kind of um, supervisor. So, but yeah, it's just interesting. And, and I encourage people to give that a listen. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I will sort of provide the the, the, the other um, argument uh, in terms of the difference between Wharton and let's say a, a, a program like Cox. I think Wharton being a, a much larger program, it's a little bit um, tougher to sort of marry the two departments um, together in the in the way that Cox has done. Um, and you could also argue that actually you want the freedom of admissions to simply recruit the best people and then have the resources to find those best people, the right um, situations. But nevertheless, I do think this sort of placing both, you know, departments under the same umbrella absolutely does make sense. Yeah. Clearly, you want to, you want people in admissions that are, are highly recruitable and so on and so forth. So, yeah, no, a smart move for sure. Yeah. So a um, couple more things, and then we'll get into our uh, wiretaps candidates, which I'm excited to talk about. So two really quick things. One is that this week is our second and final deferred enrollment event. We're going to sit down with admissions folks from Wharton, Yale, MIT and Darden, and we're going to talk all about their um, deferred MBA programs. So this is for college folks who are thinking of applying to business school and want to kind of um, reserve their seat early, if you will. And the way to sign up for those events is to just go to bit.ly forward slash D-E-M-B-A-2-2. Those last two are numbers, not not spelled out. So that's um, you can sign up for that. We did one last week with a handful of schools, and so this is the second one, and should be a lot of fun. Um, Alex, I shared this with you, but we got the nicest email that I wanted to read out. Um, we got an email from one of our listeners named Andrew, who's kind of a longtime listener. I know that um, I think he got an early start, so we we interacted with him I think via the wires when he was sort of an early bird candidate, and he wrote us an update email, which um, I'll just read it to you because it's just so nice to hear. He wrote, Graham and Alex, I wanted to take a moment to thank you both for the wisdom, wit, and humor you've shared via the Clear Admit podcast. It has been a mood boost during the long months of GMAT prep, essay writing, rewriting, and interviews. I'll be attending Northwestern Kellogg with scholarship dollars, $20,000 in total, due in part to your sage advice. It came down to Duke, where I had a $50,000 offer, or UVA with 40 or Kellogg. 
I was featured as an Apply Wire candidate on episode 164, and I decided to apply to Duke because of your suggestion. Though I didn't end up attending Fuqua, the process was helpful and increased the scholarship request leverage at Northwestern. I started out without scholarship dollars there and was able to get 20,000 after following your advice and their request process. And then he writes, my daughter has doubled in age from one to two years since we started listening to your episodes in the car. He writes, I thought you'd enjoy hearing an audio clip of her thanking you both. Stay safe and kick on, Andrew. So I've asked Dennis to play the audio clip. I think he's going to play it right now so we can listen to it. Thank you, Grandma Alex. Daddy's going to business school. <laughs> Alex, what do you have to say on this one? Really nice to hear that. Uh, absolutely fantastic. Um, always great to get that kind of feedback. Um, but, it, you know, it, it, it does sort of make me laugh a little bit when they talk about sort of the, the idea that, you know, we have a bit of wit and a bit of fun and a bit of humour and so on and so forth. I think hopefully that sort of brings up two things. One is, again, and we talked about this before, we're pretty passionate about this subject matter. And we can talk about it in a very sort of matter-of-fact way because it's something we've lived for, what, 20 years now or, <laughs> yeah. or however long. So so, so I think that's that's important to recognise. But also, and this is a little bit tangential, Graham, and I know we're, 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 we're taking a lot of time before we get to the actual candidates we should be talking about. But when I was at Wharton um, in admissions, um, um, Ben Rellis and Kofi Kankum, I think his name is, they started the Wharton Comedy Club. <laughs> and I swear, I did three stand-ups with the Wharton Comedy Club. And that those were some of the most memorable and best moments of my seven-year experience at Wharton. So it just brings out the idea that there's so much you can get involved in um, as a student, not as an adcom, but as a student, if, yeah. if, you, if you choose to do so, at, at these programs that you might not expect as <laughs> you're, 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 you're applying and stuff. Anyway, I know that's tangential, but they talk about wit and humor. So we got to say, yeah, I did a bit of stand up. Yeah. So you're suggesting that doing that has helped you to be humorous on this podcast, I guess. <laughs> Well, <laughs> there, 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 there is that, but, but I'm, I'm telling you, hats off to stand-up comics that you've got to do so much preparation to be very good at what you do. I do know that. Agreed. All right. So without further ado, I suggest we dive on in um, to the candidates for this week. Uh, so <laughs> let's talk about uh, Wiretap's candidate number one. You didn't let me say, let's kick on. Oh, yeah, you're right. Okay. Well, should we kick on? <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. So this is Wiretap's candidate number one. We've got an apply wire entry from someone who's applied already um, for, you know, to start next fall. They've been working in education. It seems like ed tech, really. And post-MBA, they want to get into consulting and maybe even do some entrepreneurial um, pursuits. They have a GRE score of 328 and a GPA of 3.6. They've, ha they've got about three years of work experience, which they describe as being a year and a half doing kind of early stage startup work in the ed tech sector. And they also did um, another year and a half doing consulting for three different education companies on product growth, go to market and, and kind of marketing projects. Uh, they're based in India. And you asked them when they were applying and they said they just applied, I believe in round two. Uh, so that's kind of the basics. And, you know, so this is an Indian candidate with kind of an ed tech background, a little less work experience than you typically see. And we also, we don't know too much about their undergraduate experience and such, but you had a little bit of back and forth with them. So what, what do you make of this candidate? 
Yeah, I mean, this candidate's very interesting in as much as, I mean, I'm going to assume that their undergraduate experience is, is strong. They, they yeah. put a 3.6, so maybe they converted that from the India scale. Their, their location is India, so I'm assuming they're Indian national. Um, and they say um, that, I've, you know, in terms of their specific work experience, they say, I've worked on scaling two early stage startups in the ed tech sector for a year and a half, and then for the subsequent year and a half, consulted three education companies on their product growth, go to market, and, and, and so forth. That experience to me sounds very good, Graham. It sounds like high impact, you know, pretty fast pace and so on and so forth. And niche, you know, it's kind of a, a unique niche, you know, with respect to ed tech. Yeah. And the other thing I forgot to say, actually, is I didn't say where they're applying because it's an interesting list of schools that I wanted to get your take on. And so just so our, our listeners can follow along, they're applying to Babson, Indiana, Michigan, UCLA and UNC. So just want everyone to have that in, in mind too. Yeah, I mean, I, so, so what I would say, Graham, is if this candidate had applied in round one and come in early, um, you know, and, I, and I'm saying this because to me, that, that it's likely they're coming from an overrepresented population. And what we know in MBA admissions is that that makes it tougher in round two relative to, you know, how they might have done in round one. Um, so if they'd come in in round one, I'd say those schools that you listed, um, you know, is, is sort of um, the, the tier below the M7 plus then the next tier um, below that, um, they could be aiming a little bit higher. Mm -hmm. um, but the fact that they've come in in round two, um, then, then maybe um, they, they've sort of targeted the, the, the right programs. I mean, we shall see. You know, it, it still might be difficult for, for programs like Ross and Anderson because those would be the sort of the, 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 the top programs that they, they're targeting um, and so on and so forth. So I'm just a little concerned that they've come in in round two. Now, the other aspect is they've got three years of experience, or, or I think that's what they say, three years, um, so what would happen to them, let's say if they worked for that additional year, um, got additional experience, more impact and so forth, and then came in next season in round one um, early with a little bit more sort of understanding of the whole uh, application process behind them and so on and so forth then the types of schools they could be targeting could be the likes of Ross and Anderson, but the tier above too. So they can completely change the landscape of schools that they can target um, if they thought that another year would allow them to, for additional growth and impact. Yeah, That's what gets me about this candidate. Yes, they might well be successful because this season because I don't think they've overstretched their targeting, but I wonder if they would have been better off or would be better off waiting another six months and coming in early next season. Yeah. And you know what's going to happen if I had to predict? Um, I think they'll get into Babson because Babson's, you know, more of a top 25, maybe even top 40 type MBA program, obviously very strong in entrepreneurship and, and anything entrepreneurial, yeah. but you know, I suspect they'll get in there. Um, I could be wrong, but I suspect they're going to get in there. And then, you know, will they get into Kelly and UNC? Hard to say. Um, and then Michigan and Ross, even harder to say. And so I'm, what I what I think they could wind up with is this sort of tough situation where maybe they're waitlisted at a couple, they got the offer from Babson and they got to decide, like, do I just, you know, do I go to Babson or should I 
you know, roll the dice again. And, and I think what you're saying is, wow, if they were to be super prepared, have that extra bit of experience and apply in round one, they could, you know, kind of, yeah, shift the scale up a bit in terms of where they're looking and have a different set of opportunities. So I, I agree with you. I think there's a lot to like on the counting stats, 328, 36. I mean, there's nothing, you know, wrong with that, right? So I, and I like the ed tech kind of angle. I did want to mention, they said that they want to work in the global education practice of an established management consulting firm post MBA. So, you know, continue to use that background that they have, but in a kind of consulting capacity, there's a lot to like here. I mean, we don't know a ton about outside activities. Um, They do indicate, I I think they've done some, you know, they they mentioned in a comment that they've done some um, nonprofit work and they do Toastmasters and things. So I feel like there's enough here and I agree with you, boy, what, what could have been if they had applied early this year? Um, Although if they'd applied really early, then maybe they would have had even less kind of work experience to point to. So I don't know. We'll see where the where the sort of chips fall. But I want them to know that they have this option of maybe looking at round one next year if they don't get what they want this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of potential here, Graham. Is now the right time is a big question. Yeah, agreed. Um, all right. Well, yeah, thanks for picking that one out. And I want to thank that person for submitting their profile. Uh, let's move on and talk about Wiretap's candidate number two. So this is another ApplyWire entry. It's another candidate that's hoping to um, go to school this coming fall. They've applied to Columbia, Tuck, Duke, Wharton Lauder, Michigan, Kellogg, Chicago Booth, and Darden. And they have been working in manufacturing. I believe they actually mentioned they work um, in kind of uh, engine manufacturing. So kind of interesting. They're a mechanical engineer. They'd love to get into consulting after business school. And they'd like to go to, you know, some of the big names, Bain, BCG, McKinsey, or PwC. GMAT score was a 740. Their GPA, which was also out of India, is an 8 out of 10. They've got also three years of work experience. They're located in the U.S., and that's because they left India after undergrad, where they attended one of the kind of a top school in India. They don't specify, but they give us a ballpark, um, saying it's one of the NIT, IIT, or BITSs. Um, so those are the best kind of engineering schools in, in India. And they did an MS in the U.S. at a top six public university, where they earned a 3.96 GPA, and then have since stayed in the U.S. and been working in this kind of engine manufacturing role. They do have some leadership in that they lead 15 plus uh, work, uh, kind of a, a workforce of 15 plus workers. Um, and so that's that's kind of the basics here. And they, I'll let you get into some of the specifics around, I know they applied to some of these schools in round one, some in round two, and they even have some results it seems thus far. So I'll let you kind of speak to that, but this is an interesting one. Yeah, frankly, I love this sort of profile in as much as this is an engineer um, they build stuff, they do stuff, and they've done supervisory work and so on and so forth. Um, schools tend to like, you know, really, really like the, the, that type of profile, I think. Um, you know, manufacturing, yeah. I mean, to me, that that's all very, very good. Obviously, their numbers are super strong. Eight um, out of India with a 396 uh, master's GPA. Um, and, and so forth, 740 GMAT, that's expected with this type of profile, I suppose. So there's a lot to like here. And I also like their extracurriculars. I think they've done some um, interesting stuff um, in that regard. I forget exactly what it is, but um, but but yeah, lots to like here. Um, 
I'm a little bit um, concerned about the application strategy as a whole in as much as they, like you said, they applied to some schools in round one um, and they're on Kellogg and Tuck's wait list. Yeah. Um, again, as much as I like this overall profile and the engineering aspect and, and so on and so forth, they are um, from an overrepresented population, you know, tech or engineering, um, India, and yeah, I'm 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 presuming male, but that's an assumption. So I shouldn't, um, I sh- I shouldn't um, abs- There's no explicit um, note there to that to that effect. But um, so so they 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 have that bit of an uphill battle, which does again make round one more appealing than round two. So there are so after going through the round one, they're on Kellogg and Tots waitlist. That's a, a shame. Now they're sort of targeting Duke Dard and Ross type programs if they'd have targeted uh, uh, Duke Darden Ross in round one I would argue maybe they would have actually got a winning result um, there because you know those programs are just a slight notch below Tuck as it were um, and, and Kellogg etc anyway we I mean that's all hindsight's twenty twenty. Um, I guess what the point I'm making, Graham, is in round two, things are going to be a bit tougher for a candidate like this, much like the first candidate we talked about. They're from an overrepresented population. So my fingers are crossed that they, they see a decent result out of Duke, Darden and Ross. They absolutely need to be on those wait lists, remain on them for, for Kellogg and Tuck for any sort of positive movement um, and there's a, there's a possibility, Graham. This season, some of the early signals that we're hearing is app volumes in round two aren't as strong as perhaps some schools had hoped, which may make the opportunity for wait this for round one sort of you know may, maybe there's more opportunity there um, and so on and so forth. So I'm really I got my fingers crossed for this candidate, Graham. I'm just a little um, nervous in as much as. Um, yeah, round one would have been a lot easier with Duke Darden and Ross in the mix, I think. Yeah, I guess, you know, one of the things I just wanted to share with our listeners is that they they, they spoke a little bit about their goals, right? And they said they want to move into strategy consulting, which we already mentioned, and go to one of the big names there. But later, they want to focus on auto and transportation, that, that sort of vertical, and then perhaps even transition to working in that industry with respect to kind of sustainable product initiatives and and even, you know, maybe go back to Asia at some point. So they have this kind of interesting career path that they've clearly given some thought to. And so when I see all this stuff, these big numbers, 740, um, a really high GPA out of a top, a top engineering school in India, plus that great, you know, um, uh, master's degree in the US where they did exceedingly well, I mean, basically a 4.0, I, I kind of say, wow, th- this person should be getting into an M7 type school. I recognize they're from India, but they've got a U.S. master's. They're working in the U.S., so they're, they're, they've got some feathers in their cap. And, and I also like, I feel like automotive and sustainability are going hand in hand now as kind of being really hot sectors with, you know, electric vehicles. I mean, there's so much happening there that I can see a really compelling case and storyline. Now, I don't know if they executed on that. Like I'm something saying to me, if they got a lot of rejections in the first round and some wait lists, it makes me wonder if maybe the package that they assembled didn't convey everything as well as it could have. Um, but hopefully they get some positive news here in round two. And, you, you know, you mentioned they're waiting on word from a handful of those schools. Um, so we'll, we'll find out, but it, it is interesting because I really, 
yeah, I, I, this sort of goes to show, like you're saying, it's important to apply early if you're from an overrepresented population, but also important to have a good mix of schools. You can't just shoot for the stars in the first round if you want to make sure you, you know, you land something to have in your back pocket as you head into the second round. So, yeah, we'll see what happens. I'm rooting for this candidate, and you know, when I saw the stats and the storyline, I thought, wow, you know, this person could go to a very top school, and and hopefully that will come you know, maybe they'll get in off of the Tuck or Kellogg wait list. And, but yeah, they need to be proactive there. So I hope they're doing everything they can on those fronts. Yeah. I think you raise a really important point that I didn't talk as succinctly as I should have done about this idea. When you come up with your application strategy, don't just apply to, to, to your very sort of top schools in round one thinking, all right, round two, I could just apply to the next tier down if I don't get in, in round one. Um, you really want to uh, apply to the, a range of schools in each, well, certainly in round one to see where the chips fall and then develop your round two strategy based off of that. I think that's super, super important um, um, to, to recognise. And this is just more, well, it's really super important for, for candidates that are applying for these from these overrepresented populations. It matters much less for candidates that are, you know, are less traditional and so on and so forth. Um, but yeah, I think that's a super important point, Graham. And I really hope this candidate does get great news in round two, because again, um, aside from coming from an overrepresented population, the, the, there is a lot to really like about what this candidate's done. And they're obviously exceedingly smart, but, you know, they're, they're doing some really interesting things. I mean, I love that they're involved in initiating tutoring programs for technicians at their current employment. They're involved in adult education and so on and so on. This is a, sounds like a really cool person yeah. with sort of a spectrum of interests, which I think, again, Adcom generally really likes. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I think that, you know, we'll just have to see, but I, I agree with you. If the volume has been light in round two, this person may just get good news right here in the round two results cycle because, you know, the wait list will be, um, will be used and tapped into. So, yeah. so we'll see, but I would definitely encourage them to signal to Tuck and Kellogg that if they are accepted, they are coming, you know, that's, that's always the best way yes. um, to get in off a wait list or certainly one of the ways. Um, so let's move on though. I want to thank that person for their, their post. And again, best of luck. Just a quick, quick, quick question to you Graham and I know we're going to run light, light on time but with the, the these sort of impressive stats and and everything they've done obviously they they would have put to, let's assume they put together a great applications in round one they're on the wait list um Kellogg and and, and Tuck what additional effort what additional things could someone on those wait lists do to make themselves more um, attractive to 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 the schools you mentioned the one issue make it very clear that if admitted you will come no one no school wants to admit anyone off the wait list that's going to um, affect their their um, um, matriculation rate in any negative way so that's that's rule number one but what else can a candidate like this do Graham? Yeah, there's a lot of things. I mean, I think I, I would, you know, characterize there are these buckets, right? There's sort of um, an update on the candidacy. So if there's a, you know, and not in this case, but sometimes if there's a new test score or a promotion at work or even just a project at work that's been completed or something exciting happening at work that you want to alert the committee to that you think changes your profile a bit or adds to it in some way. Um, there's also what I would characterize as a kind of update around your interest in the program and your knowledge of the program. So sometimes people will have 
have a lot of interaction with current students, alumni, um, you know, and, and even admissions folks, and, and then write a kind of, I don't know, like almost like a love letter about like, hey, you know, these are all the things I've been learning um, over the last several weeks or months. And I'm so excited more than, you know, more than ever to join this program. And here are the things that I would really want to get involved in. Just this kind of added layer of like why I want to be there and what I can bring. Um, to the program. Yeah. So that's another one. And then I guess there is, in some cases, schools will even allow for an additional letter of recommendation or letter of support. So kind of third party folks weighing in um, on your candidacy, that's certainly possible as well. Um, but in any event, that, that that's sort of the range of it. And we have, you know, we do have a, a waitlist guide that we sell on the website with lots of info. And I, I don't want to over pitch stuff on this, <laughs> this podcast episode, but there's a lot of good tips on our website generally for waitlist stuff. So I would encourage this person to read those as well. Very good. Best of luck to this candidate. Yeah. Yeah. Best of luck. So let's move on and talk about Wiretap's candidate number three. So this is a decision wire entry. It comes from a candidate who applied to Berkeley, Duke, Harvard, and UVA Darden. They're going to start school this fall, and they were admitted to Berkeley, Duke, and UVA. So the only school that didn't accept them was was Harvard. Um, And they also were fortunate enough to get some money, right? So with Berkeley, they've got a $90,000 scholarship on offer. With Duke, they've got $80,000. And with Darden, they've got $150,000 scholarship. They want to work in asset management. Um, which could involve hedge funds, but it, you know th- that's the category we have on the website. So I don't know exactly, but um, you know, sort of as- asset management slash hedge funds. Uh, I think they also do want to get in eventually into kind of the impact investing space. But because they're not coming from a finance background, they might need to do some other things first. Um, they did narrow the focus. They said that um, they were kind of at this point deciding between the ninety thousand dollar offer at Haas versus the full ride at Darden. They said they're open to both East and West Coast post-MBA. And again, they'd love to be in sustainable finance or impact investing in the longer run. They were originally leaning towards Haas because it has a robust curriculum in that space, but they're worried about, you know, they think that full scholarship is kind of hard to beat. Uh, I did want to mention as well that they have a 323 on the GRE and a 3.99 GPA uh, from undergraduate. I know, I'll let you speak to this, Alex, but I know that there was a lot of good advice given by a couple of different folks on the site, one of whom's Elliot on our team, but do you want to go through some of the debate that ensued? Yeah, I mean, the debate um, typically has been, you know, um, Darden with the with the full, with the full scholarship um, over Haas, and Darden probably sort of winning out there um, because it's a full ride, it's proximity um, on the East Coast and so on and so forth. Um, the, the, yeah, I think the overall sentiment basically was Darden, Graham. I mean, and it makes sense. I mean, in terms of these scholarship offers, lots of people sort of speculate this, this process seems quite random in terms of where you get admitted, don't get admitted, scholarship offers and not. But again, this candidate's a very good example of that's really not the case because um, if you if you looked at Haas, Duke, Duke and Darden, we would say Haas is in a tier slightly above Duke and Darden. So what do we have here? We have a, a full ride at Darden, a, a, a good offer at uh, Duke and, and a slightly less offer at Haas, which makes perfect sense uh, if you make that argument that Haas is the slightly... Um, um, stronger program overall, um, not necessarily for this candidate's goals, but overall. Um, but yeah, 
um, you know, without going into the minutiae of the detail, certainly the, the evidence from, from, from the community, i.e. Elliot, and actually this other contributor, Graham, um, has, uh, I was just looking at the stats now, 359 likes. This person is our most liked um, commenter on on the wires outside of myself, Elliot, and yourself. <laughs> um, they've just eclipsed that with 359 likes. So I think we should celebrate that. That's fantastic. Yeah, that is excellent. What I was going to say is the one thing, it's actually inversed in that Berkeley's giving them 90 and Duke's giving them 80. So that is that is the one wrinkle that I was kind of like, oh, that, that's a little not exactly what you might expect. But again, the point that I think it's come down to here, though, is that Darden's given them 150, yeah. and Haas, which arguably the highest ranked school, is is you know giving them less. So that's the big debate. Um, some of the interesting discussion on the site was all around how, since this person's not a finance person, they might need to do investment banking first to break into the field, working on the sell side before um, you know they kind of can get into you know the buy side. So that and with that in mind, everyone's sort of saying, gee, you know, Darden's pretty good in that domain. You'd be on the East Coast, get to New York, do some you know finance related recruiting. Um, and, and so that's what's come into play. Obviously, this person's got to make the decision. The other thing to keep in mind is that these are just really different environments. You know, Berkeley is in the Bay Area. Um, I mean, it's, it's you know, arguably it has all the kind of um, appeal of a very large metropolitan area with lots going on. Um, Charlottesville is more of a rural kind of small, smaller um, town type setting. Obviously, there's a ton going on there because it's a great college town, et cetera, but it's just a different vibe, right? So they need to think about that. But, you know, $150,000, basically a free ride um, is always hard to walk away from. And, you know, I have to say, if they really think there's a chance they might do investment banking first, then suddenly, you know, the the odds start to shift a little bit um, towards the East Coast. So yeah, this is a good one. Always, these are always good for debate. And yeah, appreciate everyone chiming in on the site to help this person find their way for sure. Yeah, yeah, no, very good. And I think your, your advice going directly into investment banking is very well said. Um, and it was a point picked up. I, it was either by Elliot or or, or or by our other contributors. So absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Great conversation on the site. Yeah. Excellent. So Alex, thanks for picking these out as always. I know we're kind of running, we've run long here on our typical episode length, but uh, yeah, it was great talking through all these things and some of the things we chatted about even before we got into the candidates, but we'll be back in one week's time to do it all over again. And I uh, just want to remind everyone to rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen. And yeah, thanks so much, Alex, for all your help on this. Brilliant. And stay safe, everyone. Take care.